From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Today on the show, I've got my close friend, Levi Bayer, who is the co-founder of Second Shift, a co-working space in Chicago, Illinois, that has diversity, equity, and inclusion as a central part of its mission. He's also the director of training at Chicago United for Equity, where his work centers around dismantling systemic racism by leading the equity fellowship and designing and leading community discussions that center civic impact on people of color. Now, typically, if you've been listening to this show, you know I start the episode with a sort of grandiose pro wrestler-like introduction of our guest. Uh, given the events of the past couple weeks, as well as the topic for this specific episode, I felt that would be a little bit inappropriate. Uh, our topic today with Levi is strategies to support racial justice in your business. Obviously, highly relevant to what's happened in the world over the past couple weeks uh, with the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. Um, but it's also, to be honest, something that, it's a topic that obviously Levi centers his work around, but uh, Levi, I've known you for five years now. Uh, and it's, it's a topic that we've been talking about, I feel like, for five years. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this is actually your third time as a guest on this show. The second time you were on, we actually had some version of a conversation around um, more or less the race talk. Mm -hmm. And now I think, even though we've been talking about it for a while, I think more people are ready to listen now. So that's why, um, that's why I think it's important for us to have this conversation. So with that, I'll introduce you, Levi, um, and or I have introduced you. Why don't you go ahead and just, I guess, introduce yourself now? Thanks, Raj. Uh, thank you for having me again. Am I am I the first three Pete guest? No, actually, you are the. I think you're the third three feet. Matt Wilson from Under 30 Experiences tends to make oh. an annual appearance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, just to before I introduce myself, I will say that it does feel like um, this conversation as a social movement is really obviously heightened right now. And it does feel like more and more people are coming into it together at this moment. That's really exciting. And um, I'm really excited for this movement to grow. So I'm, I'm happy to, you know, Hopefully this feels like doing my part by just sharing more of what my experiences have been like um, and how that can, you know, hopefully provide something to others, uh, whether it's just a relatable story or, or maybe some next steps. So um, yeah, I, I'm a, you know, a, I'm a business owner in Chicago and uh, now run an equity fellowship with a great nonprofit called Chicago United for Equity. 
Um, I hail from Minnesota, where I grew up uh, kind of learning the values of community and connection through uh, growing up in a rural community where you really worked together closely with the folks around you and got to know people really well. And <clears throat> have been in Chicago for 10 years. Um, you know, this is uh, a really uh, great city and it's, and it's got its areas to grow. Um, and you know, it's one of the most segregated cities in the country to be, to be quite honest about that. And um, that means that there's a lot of room to investigate and learn and grow about what race in America looks like is here in Chicago and what progress can look like. Can you also share, for those that don't have the benefit of video, can you also share what you identify as uh, yeah. racially, ethnically? Yeah, totally. So <clears throat> I'm black, uh, specifically I'm biracial, so black and white. Um, and I think uh, for the context of this episode, it's important because as we think about doing work that is in a racial context, and as any of us, any people of any background, start thinking about showing up for racial, racial justice right now, it's gonna be really important to think about who we are and what walk we walk and how that affects how we show up. So it's important for me to be aware of being a black man as I show up to do racial justice work. And I would urge anyone uh, to take whatever resources and support and close friends and family members they have to sit in discussion about their own race and sit in contemplation about their own race to think about how they show up in this work. So let's talk about this idea of showing up. Um, and, and again, our topic is strategies to support racial justice in your business. I think the best way to get there is to first just let's have a little bit of a discussion around the larger events that have been happening. Um, so, you know, we had the unfortunate, you know, brutal murder of George Floyd, uh, at this point, 10 days ago, as of, as of this recording, 10 days ago. Um, so we've had about, you know, 10 days or nine days of protests, which then became, um, you know, peaceful protests, which then became marches, which then became quote unquote riots. Um, and you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't until last night, again, this is 10 days after, it wasn't until day nine that we actually got the arrest of all four uh, police officers or the charging of all four police officers. Mm. So clearly some civil unrest was required to get there. Um, through, in, I guess, in your own personal opinion, why do you feel like it, this time around, it got to this level? And, and I'll say like Ferguson happened a few years ago, but it was really just contained to Ferguson you know, where, you know, where there was riots and all that kind of stuff. Why do you think there was a national like groundswell this time around? Yeah. And international groundswell. I was, yesterday I saw pictures from Amsterdam and <clears throat> Dublin and all over the world. Although I did see some of them just jumping on protesting because they didn't want to be, have to be stay inside anymore. <laughs> it's actually funny you mentioned that. So I, I think there is some, so first of all, I'll say I don't <clears throat> I don't know the exact specific formula. I'm not I'm not the expert that's going to point out exactly what worldwide <clears throat> you know social factors are contributing to this movement right now. But from my experience and from my work in community building and some work in racial justice uh, work, um, I think that I think that there has been enough um, kind of social priming for people to be paying attention to an issue like this. I think there's social priming. I think there's more video and audio being captured. And I think we had some pent, pent up uh, uh, stuff ready to go because of this pandemic. 
So to kind of break those down each a little bit, just very quickly on each of them, um, you know, that social priming, like we've had years of this. It wasn't just uh, Ferguson and Mike Brown's murder. It was Eric Garner. It was Philando Castile in Minneapolis, the same, or in St. Paul, the same metro area. Um, in the month before George Floyd, it was Ahmad Aubrey and Brianna, Brianna Taylor. So there's been, uh, and, you know, you can, the list, I, sometimes I see that list getting updated and people post on social media of the black people that have been unfairly killed by police. And I, I don't want to say the number because I'll get it wrong, but it's, it's very high. Um, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. So people are seeing that more and more. And I think people are feeling some uncomfortableness about that, not just black people, but I think everybody is starting to be like, wow, that's getting pretty intense. But then you combine that with our, our video age, right, our phone age. So people are saying, wow, it's, some, some folks are saying, wow, I didn't realize it was so, so racist or so intense out there. Um, that's an unfortunate, it's unfortunate that that news flash is happening for people because it has always been that racist out there. And that it's always been that tough for black people and other uh, communities of color and other marginalized groups. Um, and whether it's visceral, intense, violent racist, racism or the less intense uh, microaggressions and systemic uh, things that people of color experience all day and every day, especially in the workplace. So we're capturing that stuff on video. You know, we know the statistics. We see the we have the videos of Eric Garner in New York. We have the video of George Floyd. That's really visceral, and it's hard to watch. And it makes you think. It's hard. I don't know how a human being could watch that and say, "Yeah, that was okay." Mm -hmm. So it just causes this reaction because it's so brutal, traumatic, honestly, to watch. Um, we can get more into that of what it means to be a, a black person watching it as well, over and over. Um, and then that third part is I, I do think that something about the pandemic is, is causing, I think people were ready to get out of the house. I think people were pent up, <clears throat> excuse me. I think people were pent up in one way or another. And, um, so I think it was just the right formula. Hopefully it feels like the right time. I mean, you could cite all sorts of stuff. Maybe it was eight years of a black president. Maybe it's been four years of a terrible, uh, uh Republican president that we've had now. So, you know, it could be a whole number of things um, that are leading people to say, like, now is the time, let's all get on board. Do you think as well, one of the, one of the things I was reflecting on was, do you think there's been such overwhelming white support, and really support from every community, this time around, because this was a case where there actually wasn't a gun involved, so therefore there doesn't have to be this inherent opposition from, like, the NRA and other pro-gun groups to say like, well, what is, you know, there's not a debate about like, should guns exist? When is it appropriate to use a gun? And, and granted in, in Eric Garner's case, there was no gun involved, but I feel like there has to, that ha that's also playing a role here as well. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is a bigger, uh, a bigger indication. I see, I think what you're pointing out is a bigger indication of one of the manifestations of racism and of, and of systemic racism is that we think Somewhere in the back of our mind, we have this bias that black people are doing bad things. And we think that black people are robbing and shooting and stealing and selling drugs and doing all sorts of stuff. And that's, a, that's one of the stereotypes we have for black communities, especially urban black communities. So when you have people like Mike Brown and Eric Garner, people, the argument turns to, well, what, how wrong was it what they were doing? Which I'll just point out from the gate is a false statement. 
place to start from because even if they were doing something fairly wrong, probably up to, well, sorry, no, I'm actually, this is again, getting out of my field, but it's a false argument out from the gate because it's not the police officer's job to be the judge, jury, and executioner sure. of that person in that moment. So that I'll just stop there. Um, and I think so, I think you're right. I think it does take a little bit. I think it allows white people to get more on board and say this black person was wronged. No question about it in this case, which is just unfortunate that it took such a clear example. Um, whereas these other folks also did not deserve to be murdered. Um, and, and they were, and, and the argument was about guns or, or something else. Sure. And I think as well, it's gotta be, I think the other, the other things that were caught on tape, I don't, I could be misremembering, but I don't think you had eight, nine continuous minutes of footage to where you could see the whole, like, I mean, we witnessed a progressive murder of someone broadcasted on TV over and over again. Which yeah, is, we did. I mean, it's incredible when you actually think about that as like a singular statement. But mm-hmm. um, I think some of the other footage, it's like it was like 48 seconds long of footage. And so there's all this debate about, well, what happened before they got there? You know? Yeah, it's, it's again, an unfortunate debate around like, well, were, did, they, did they deserve it is essentially the debate. Um, and that's just really unfortunate because, again, that police officer's job is not to decide that. Um, right. It's an, it's an abuse of power for that officer to decide that or for civilians to decide that. So Ahmad Aubrey's killers were not brought into custody for I think two months after his murder. And um, because we didn't see a video at first and because I'm assuming when they reported into their uh, police uh, officers that reported to that death of that person, to his murder, they said that they were defending themselves. And they said that they had probably, they, they thought they had a, a reason to get in their truck and follow him as he was jogging with guns. And um, so whatever the, the actual law or the perceived righteousness of those individuals, and then, the, and then the lawmakers who didn't bring them into custody right away, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought that was okay. Mm-hmm. So that, that translate back, to, when we translate that back to like why now, is like in the past there's been this argument of is this okay? And in the George Floyd case, as you're pointing out, it just so clearly is not okay what happened. Let's talk about that experience of having to watch this footage. He said, you know, as a, as a black man, what it's like to have to see the footage. And I, you know, and I am, I'm brown, I'm a person of color. I have faced racism, lots of it, not in the same extent or the same fashion. Um, and it, in my case, it has not been a part of systemic racism, which is different. Um, I would say it has, but it, it, just in different ways. Sure. Yeah, I guess what I'll say is my, if it's systemic in my case, it's not the same 400 years of buildup. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a totally different, um, I guess, or it's an augmented like origin point. Now, um, so, so when I watch it, I'm like, I, I guess the difference that I'm saying is when I watch that, I am like crushed by seeing it, but I'm still watching it as I can't believe it's happening to them as opposed to it's happening to me. Whereas when you're watching it, you're seeing 
more or less. I can't believe it's happening to me. So can you take us through what really what it is like to to have to watch that footage? Yeah, and I just want to make a really clear disclaimer that I'm only talking about my own experiences and not the experiences of all black people. There's just no way anyone can speak for their entire race. And so that's not what I'm doing here. Um, <clears throat> I, I, yeah, there's one other thing I want to get to too. But so for, to, to, get, to answer your question, I mean, it's kind of like when they hold the microphone up after when the, you know, the, how, the family's house gets destroyed by a tornado and then they go, how do you feel? Well, of course it feels terrible. Um, it, it feels absolutely uh, devastating. And I think it's just when you do find that connection between <clears throat> the race of yourself and the race, the look and appearance and, and not just look, but like experience of walking through the world of that person. Like, you know that that person has been harassed so many times, again, overtly and inadvertently <clears throat> and, and being able to relate to that yourself um leading up like that's part of the injustice is you like you know that they've had such a tough walk and then to go out like that in such a visceral way um when you relate to those life experiences and when you relate to what that looks like you can see yourself there you can see yourself being the person lying on the ground and if anybody were to try to really sit in silence and sit in whatever you know medit you know meditation or just a quiet moment and really try to picture themselves doing that i think their brain would probably try to reject that experience um and i think that would be a really tough thing for most of us to do i'm not saying do it don't invite that trauma into your life please don't do that but what i am saying is that black people have been forced to do that for a long time again we have the technology to see it across the world now but people have been seeing it firsthand in their communities since the country was founded so it's it's it is tough and it is trauma to have to watch that sort of imagery or to know that people are watching and avoiding it or to just even see now the news uses the cutout of uh, what's the officer's name Michael Chauvin. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know the pronunciation, but it's roughly that. So they they use the like cutout like uh, the bust up of him, and you're like, I still know that's an image of him murdering somebody. Um, and I, and you have to see that over and over and over again in the news. That's traumatic. Um, and I think I want to point out that like the way you even introduced us, it's like you said, I experienced it, but not like this. I, just pointing out that, um, this phrase, I, I should figure out who said this phrase to credit it appropriately, but it's not the oppression Olympics, right? We're not trying to figure out who's suffering worse. We're not trying to figure out if, if my, my viewing of that as a black man is worse than yours. Um, what we know is that it's bad for all of us. Uh, and, and, and that's, and that's the problem. Like it's bad. It is important to point out the experience of people based on the race. It, it, it's, it's not good to not see race. It is good to say that person's experience is something different because of the race. So it is good to say, wow, black people are really seeing some really traumatic violence against their bodies right now, all the time, reoccurring on loops all the time. And other people are also experiencing trauma mm. around this as well. It's not a, uh, I think what you're saying is it's not a competition to see who's suffering the most. Exactly. Right. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, from that, like you mentioned, you know, there is, there's a lot of factors that lead into this like pent up, like outburst. 
Um, one of the things I had actually said, so I taught a yoga class, a couple of yoga classes shortly after, a few days after this happened. Um, and it was, it was the Sunday after Floyd's murder. So it was what, five days, six days at that point. And so mm-hmm. you had had the protests come to other cities by that point, the rioting had begun in other cities. And the way I kind of spoke to it was, um, what we saw on tape was the face of power placing all their weight and downward pressure onto someone who's powerless. But really what we saw, like that was just visual, visual imagery for what has been 400 years of black America shouldering the weight of the country, of the entire country and just getting only downward pressure in return. And mm-hmm. when pressure builds up long enough, unless you happen to have a slow release, slow release steam valve, that pot's going to explode and it's going to be mm-hmm. really, really messy when it explodes. Like there's going to be mm-hmm. sauce everywhere. And that is kind of, that's how, like, how I've been viewing everything that's happening. This is, this is a, this is a pressure cooker that exploded and it's sauce everywhere. And now it's like, you don't even know where to start cleaning up because this because there's sauce everywhere. Um, it's a nice uh, metaphor that also kind of paints the same picture. Yes, <laughs> it does. Well, you know, and I was, that, that was what came to mind for me as I was planning that class. Cause I knew I had to speak to it and um, I thought, I thought it made sense. So thank you for saying that it does make sense. Um, but I mean, there's a, like, it's nice to have a metaphor sometimes to bring people into the conversation. I won't do it right now, but it is also nice to name sometimes like, you know, speak more to the direct violence and give it a name and say, this is violent and people mm-hmm. are being treated violently and stuff like that. So we don't need to continue to do that right now, but sometimes the metaphors work and sometimes being like, this is actually what literally happened. Yeah. Yeah. And actually to that point, I, I was, <laughs> while I gave that metaphor, I, I did not skirt around saying murder of or anything like that i I didn't say i didn't just leave it at like there's a lot happening in the world right now i was just like you know so in any case um i think it's only when there is that explosion that people actually start paying attention whoa there's a lot of like this place is really dirty right now you know Mm -hmm. versus if you slow release steam valve it and it's only the because the the unfortunate fallout is there's enough there's enough discussion over well is the looting right or not should it only be peaceful how much looting is right you know and what you know and then i think it gets warped because then you have these takeover groups who are trying to be opportunistic about the situation but you know i think i i don't know if we were recording yet but i think i said it earlier people only really started like you didn't see businesses start donating money and jumping on board with hashtag black lives matter until it got really extreme because he was killed Monday, June, uh, it was Tuesday night. or or whatever, Monday night, maybe Tuesday morning, but, uh, or Tuesday night, but there was a, probably a five or six day gap until you saw anyone outside of the black community actually, being like, oh my God, this is like, like vocally saying this yeah. is wrong and put, putting it on social media platforms and, and then again, donating money and saying, mm-hmm. we're now reflecting at how we've played a role in this and what are we going to do differently? I think if it was just the straight up 
peaceful march, you wouldn't have that. Yeah, I mean, something that probably listeners of this podcast can relate to is the bell curve of innovation, uh, the change that happens. Um, you know, when you think about releasing a new product or releasing a new or adapting, adopting, sorry, adopting a new technology, we know that like the early adopters are that little first part of the bell curve as it starts to go up, and that's a real small percentage, right? So that's what we've had in the past in terms of like activism around like police overviews. And um, it does start there, but it does quickly, as it gets bigger and bigger, and as people go, whoa, black and white, and all sorts of different people are marching together, all sorts of people are holding up Black Lives Matter signs. Um, and then those businesses and things like that, we're at that phase now, where, yeah, we're in that middle part of the bell curve now where other people are going, oh, if they're doing it and my neighbors are doing it, if everybody's doing it, maybe I need to educate myself. Maybe I need to figure out what's going on. Um, so what we're seeing, I think, is just some of that social change sure. wave where we're getting to the, those tipping points. And I want to mention really quick that like we also are seeing, and I would just urge people to, social change is good, educated, thoughtful, intentional participation in that is best. And so, um, you know, before you just throw up that Black Lives Matter hashtag, before you just, you know, just start donating wildly to the first link that you see on Instagram, do some research. Uh, spend some time thinking about where that, that goes. So as that social change wave hits you, and you're like, ah, what do I do? Am I getting left behind? I don't wanna be the only one. Am I racist if I don't post something? Am I racist if I don't donate? Take a deep breath and reach out again. Reach out to some people you trust. Think of the people you know where you can have that trusted, trusted, vulnerable conversation to your friends who you know are on that first part of that tail of that social innovation change, and ask them, "Hey, I'm feeling like I want to get involved. How can I best do that? Is it is it social media for me? Is it calling my alderman or my city council person? Like, what can I do?" Um, and that's a really great way for people to do that intentionally versus just knee-jerk or what we would call virtue signaling, which is showcasing I'm doing the right thing, but you're just like showing that you're trying to do the right thing, but not actually doing the right thing. So virtue signaling is not helpful. Intentional, deliberate support of a movement or the people who have already been pushing that movement is helpful. So let's start to talk more about those, like what can we do about it, right? And how do we sure. start to support racial justice Let's let's actually start it on like the personal level and then move it towards the business angle. Because mm -hmm. um, like my my big concern with all like I love seeing overwhelming support from every community. My concern is, hey, I put up my black tile on Blackout Tuesday, uh, donated five bucks here, did my thing for a week. So my concern is it's awesome to see there's this overwhelming support from all these different communities. But then yeah, what I think, what I feel like is going to happen is person puts up like their black tile for blackout Tuesday. Uh, they hashtag black lives matter with something else. They, you know, they retweet someone and they kind of like do their good deed for the week. And then by next week, it's just like back to normal. And I'm not saying like you can't go back to like posting about your family because that's what's most important to you is your own family. Um, but how do we, how does this sustain as opposed mm -hmm. to just being this flash in the pan? I did my one thing, I supported, I'm good. Let me go back to what I was doing before. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, again, I don't know all the answers. I don't have the perfect response here. Um, but, you know, th this is going to come. I do. So I'll speak from, from my, I guess I'll speak from the heart <laughs> in terms of my own experiences. So from, from my heart, what matters is authentic connections with all sorts of different people. And um, that can look like building relationships with people that are outside of your bubble. But again, I mean like kind of deliberate, intentional, not exploitive uh, relationships for the Seinfeld fans. Don't be George Costanza trying to find a black friend to watch a movie with that you don't actually have. Um, I mean, really, uh, you know, where can you go show up that you might have shared interests with the people who are there who incidentally also happen to be different than you in some way and how can you build those relationships? So, you know, at a co-working space, you might interact with folks that are different than you and maybe you wanna be more open to more conversations than you've had in the past. Maybe it's your soccer team, maybe it's your running club. Um, you know, there's gonna be folks of all different uh, walks of life in those spaces. So how can you open yourself up to how other people are experiencing the world because that's where you can set the stage for having these deeper conversations. I feel like you and I are able to dive into a conversation like this because we've known each other for five years and we've shared a lot of stuff before this. We're able to do that because of the relationship we've built and the trust we've built in this space. So I trust that, you know, you're going to be a good steward of me in this conversation. I, I, I would urge people to look for the spaces where they can build up to that in their own lives. Where can you have those vulnerable conversations? If you're white, who are the people, not, again, when I say not exploitive, don't go just wandering and asking the first person of color you find on the street, but who are the people in your life that you can say like, hey, I would like to learn more about this. Uh, do you know where I can start? Um, I recommended a book to a friend last night that called me and he said, I, I, all the books on Amazon are sold out because all the, you know, everyone's sharing the same books. <laughs> and I recommended, uh, I recommended here, I recommended The Warmth of Other Suns. I haven't seen that being posted a lot right now. So it's a great historical book for people to understand the history of racism in the United States or one, one version of the history of, United, uh, of racism in the United States. So again, you're going to get that through the spaces you trust more than you're going to get that through Facebook and Instagram. So if you don't yet have those folks you trust, and this is for everyone, not just any one group of people, how can you start building those relationships today? Can you juxtapose that against the, the related sentiment that it is not the job of colored people, of black people, to educate their white counterparts? Yeah. Um, and also colored people is not a good way to <laughs> <talk>. sorry. <laughs> people of color. Is what I... <laughs> it's such a fine note. I think it's funny. I, I personally think it's funny and it's a, it's such a fine distinction. I think it's whether you want to include this or not, like is it totally up to you, but it is a really important distinction. I think the point here is, is language matters. And again, yeah. like I feel comfortable saying that to you because of our friendship, but again, like where can you, um, you know, yeah, I guess when I said it, I meant colored people, meaning anyone of color, not just yeah. black, and then yeah. and then also yeah. of black people. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, go ahead. Um, wait, sorry, what was the question? Um, 
it, well, actually, no, I, I, I do want to point out there what just happened in our exchange was me accidentally getting it wrong and it being okay that I got it yeah. wrong. You know, like I didn't exactly. like not speak yeah. because I got, I was going to get something wrong there, which is what exactly. everyone's Which is okay. And, and I'm not, and I'm not going to cancel you. And I would hope none of your listeners cancel you. Like I think cancel culture has gotten a little out of control where we're so afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of trying to show up to do this work because what if we say the wrong phrase? What if I say the, what if I post the wrong in, uh, image on Instagram? And then it's like, that you can't that's kind of bullshit to be honest and so mm -hmm. again trusted relationships authentic spaces are where we're going to be able to make those mistakes i make those mistakes every day i fuck oh sorry i mess up all You're the time. Swear. <laughs> okay. and so what like like where can we build the space to be able to make those mistakes and then grow and learn from it and i know you already know i know that was just a slip of the tongue i just was pointing it out since we're like oh. of course no but that's what happens is slips of the tongue happen and you can't be you're not like a terrible person for a slip of the tongue. Right. Um, okay. So what was our question? So the question was what, what you mentioned about like, you know, who are the people you can reach out to? Oh yeah. The burden right? upon so, so people of color. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's super real. So I'm glad you're bringing that out. So uh, it is a burden for people of color to do all the lifting needed to educate everyone, uh, white people or anybody of different races um about what their trauma experience is like or what progress will look like so it and this is tough so i'm gonna like kind of slow down here it just can't be only up to or even primarily up to or even the first step up to <laughs> just people of color to do all the work to make the progress we need in this country there is too much riding on their slash our slash my backs already like folks are already just trying to get through the day seeing that same clip or that same image of that man getting of george floyd getting murdered last week and then if every white person messaged them and said how can i end my race how can i be less racist or how can i be aware most folks you know are not racist or acting as racist so a better way of putting that for me would be how can i do my part to end systemic racism uh, folks don't have the bandwidth that that's a draining question people just don't have the bandwidth to answer that and it's and it's not their job to answer that the best thing folks can do is do that work themselves engage in spaces go to what there are spaces to learn this go to webinars plug in watch videos read books read the warmth of other sons and a cadre of other books that can teach people about this and I do think finding those trusted spaces where you can't like I do like talking to people about this it is a, a way that I it is a good mode for me in the world so I do I want everyone in my life to ask me about it no do I want the people that I've built relationships to engage with me in dialogue do I want my family members uh, to ask me about it do I want my white family members to ask me about my experiences and, and what my feedback is yes I do because those are the relationships I've invested in too so it's not that in that case I don't see myself so much as a person of color teaching somebody else about what, what my experience can be like and what next steps are, I see myself as um, a trusted friend or family member supporting somebody that I care about. And that's that difference for me is like, I do wanna give support back to people. Like I do wanna be on this podcast because you're my friend and I support what you're doing. One other thing I want to point out or call back to as we were talking about before, with that whole, like, it, you know, you might get it wrong thing. 
um, it can actually work in like both directions. So for example, I feel like I've lived a life where I always, I'm always like in the role of like mediator between different groups, not just like between like different friend groups I've had totally unrelated mm -hmm. to skin color or anything, but then also just like being dark, but not African-American and not white, but it's like, I don't know. It's like kind of like being the rock where you can, you have that like ambiguous and the rock is, uh, is part black, but mm -hmm. where you have this like ambiguous, like sort of, um, view or, or people have view as like ambiguous view. And so you're, you're allowed to have conversations with a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Um, but to the extent that like, you know, one of my close friends who, you know, is a police officer. So while I'm having this conversation with you, I'm also, you know, in the background having conversations with him about everything that's happening to learn like his perspective. Mm -hmm. And for example, um, one of the things that I saw going around yesterday was this like eight can wait thing on, online and it was like mm -hmm. the eight things for a police officer to like to like demand your police officers stop doing and so like i reposted that and mm -hmm. he private messaged me he was like hey man like so he, so here's actually the reality of those he was like it, it's gonna be it would be really tough like, like as someone who's on who's who does this job every day he was like i think like three or four of those can happen but all eight it's like he's like it's it's like humanly impossible to if a car is charging at me to say to like give a warning you know or whatever it might be <laughs> so there are certain things within that that he's saying like hey like this it, it just like wouldn't work like in practicality in the mm -hmm. heat in, in in the moment itself it, it couldn't work that way yeah so i'm like okay i hadn't seen i, I didn't realize that and so i ended up taking the post down because it was an uneducated you know it was like an uneducated repost by me and i was just jumping on popular opinion mm -hmm. um so i think there's this education, I don't think, is just like singularly related to um, just learn about this one group and that's it. Like learn about the system overall. And in that case, you know, that was a friend telling me, hey, here's my opinion on it. And me being like, okay, thanks for educating me. Like, so I got it wrong. And mm -hmm. it, again, it wasn't a like backlash of like, you're a shitty human being now because mm -hmm. you got this one thing wrong. Yeah, exactly. It's another example of like having the trusted space. I've used this phrase a lot, trusted space um, to be able to give and receive feedback like that. Um, to that story, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to debate uh, policing tactics because I have no, I have, don't know. I don't, I would not know what I'm talking about. So I'm not going to say which of those, like I haven't done the research yet. Of, I've seen that it can wait. I, I don't know about all of those. Um, I'm assuming I'm hoping some people have done research as to why they included or proposed those eight. It could even be some, you know, organizing tactics are to and persuasive tactics are to ask for more than you want. Mm -hmm. And then when you get some of it, you're more satisfied. I don't know. I don't know if that, maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's not. Um, I will say that uh, I'm, I, I know that a lot of people are believe and, and believe that they're sure that, um, the system of policing as it stands now is abusing communities of color. So, and I, and I believe that too, just to put myself in there too. Uh, should we do nothing? Absolutely not. Like change, there needs to be reform. There needs to be change. Um, it's going to be a really tough debate. I'm sure in this country as to what change can look like. 
we've had minor versions of it before when we say, can we do less guns? And people say, no, there's no way we can do less guns. And then people <laughs> point at other countries and they say, which, you know, in my opinion is a good example to be like, uh, Australia was like, we had a mass shooting and then they were like, we were like, that's it. That's, you know, do with, let's have less guns in the system. <laughs> so, you know, are things possible? Um, is change possible? Yeah, in a, in a lot of different ways. What exactly that change is going to look like is going to be tough. It is going to take education. It is going to take people talking on all sides. Are we going to end the policing system in the next month and get rid of police altogether? No, of course not. Are there immediate intermediary steps? Like, should they do a diversity inclusion training, a one-day retreat like Starbucks did? No, that doesn't do enough. That it doesn't even scratch the surface. It like looks at the surface. It doesn't even touch it. Like these changes are going to need to be uh, bigger and broader because we're not just talking about do cops uh, hurt people, murder people sometimes and, and abuse communities of colors. Do, does the policing system abuse communities of colors? Yes, because it's a product of a broader social system that devalues people of color. In this case, we're talking about black lives. The reason why black lives matter is the phrase is because our society, modern United States and worldwide society was built on the idea that black lives don't matter as much. Like that's just the harsh it's reality. It's the truth. It, of yeah, not it's, to, and to the extent that a black life was, uh, was three fifths the value of a white life. Literally we have lit, you know, just so much literal historical and modern day <laughs> evidence of this. So, when we're talking about like how do we get that one individual to treat that other individual better um, in that moment, we're talking about all these major forces that are going to need to be moving so that our communities see each other with more equity and with more fairness, with more compassion and empathy. I personally believe that comes through intentional connection with different people, not just people of different races, but just different, just people, just like being in multi, multi-dimensional spaces, not just multicultural. So who, yeah, I said a lot right there. It's, 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 it, do we need change? Yes. It's going to be hard. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to move, you know, change the Titanic away from the iceberg. We're crashing into the iceberg now and we got to steer away. And it's going to be tough, but to say it's impossible. I, and I'm not saying this in refute of your friend, but if anybody says, no, that's too hard, that's not a good enough excuse. We've got to do something. Yeah, I, and, and I guess the, the point he was making was like, you can't just blanket toss up these things and be like, this all needs to be done like right now because he, I think what he was getting at was like, hey, here's some of the reality behind these different points made, being made. Um, so I think it was more about yeah. there needs to be discussion around this. Yeah, I hope there's a dialogue between communities and law enforcement and uh, government um, decision makers. And uh, to practice equity, that discussion would really need to involve community members. So it can't just be police and elected officials making those decisions of what policing systems are going to be. What's, what's, what we're seeing right now is the community is trying to say, this is what we need and want. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to put their voice out there. We unfortunately don't have the systems in place to receive that information. It's not going to go super well as, as communities start to talk back and say, this is what we need. 
But that is what needs to happen. To say this is what community-based policing or community-based just accountability. We can we get like I'm not saying take the police out. I'm saying we can take the word policing out of the initial conversation. Let's talk about community-based accountability mm. because that's what the function of the police are supposed to be. And so let's start the conversation there and, and involve community in that conversation. I was, um, I was texting with a friend a couple of days ago, and this is related to the, the Black Lives Matter versus the All Lives Matter thing. Not that he was on the side of All Lives Matter, but I was like, not only is it, I was like, here's why All Lives Matter is stupid. First off, it's just not creative. <laughs> like it's a cheap knockoff of, um, of Black Lives Matter. And it the way I described it, I was like, it's as if like the beer guys in college got assigned a group project and then they were working on it and they happened to eavesdrop on the group next to them who came up with Black Lives Matter. And they're like, oh, that sounds good. We should use that. And then like, oh, we'll make it all lives matter though. And then they went and convinced yeah. the professor that they should be allowed to, pre to present first. Like yeah. that's the stupidity of all lives matter. Well, I saw... Yeah, I agree. I saw a really good like Instagram thing about it. And it was, this house is on fire over here. We've got to, mm -hmm. we've got to put this house out on fire. And someone said, my house is on fire too. Or sorry, my house needs help too. bring water over here. And the person goes, is your house on fire? Well, no, but my house is important. Mm -hmm. Right. We know your house is important. Of course it is. This house is on fire. We've got to take care of the house that's on fire right now. So Black Lives Matter is saying, we're not okay, our communities are not okay, we're experiencing trauma, and our lives are not valued as much as needed in society. What can we do to recognize that, to see those histories, and then to start working on solutions to change that? There's actually that specific example you just shared, there's an audio version of that at the end of, of all things, a Macklemore song called White mm -hmm. Privilege, mm -hmm. um, where someone being interviewed describes that metaphor so if you ever want like the sort of the the spoken out version of that done mm -hmm. in a really good way i would it's not macklemore saying it it's like an audio clip he's he's put into mm -hmm. the song um mm -hmm. that would another per another person who's come into a lot of contention about his place and what he does it's interesting. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> a whole um, other okay. conversation <laughs> <laughs> so let's do this we we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna end this part of the conversation here um, and we're going to do a part two. we're going to do a part two about this, um, and talk more about the what businesses can do. This, so the strategies businesses can do. What I wanted to really get was like the build up, so that we can have the conversation around what businesses can and should be doing. Sure. So Levi, thank you for joining me for this half, and everybody listening, stick around and make sure you listen to part two, where we continue the discussion around strategies to support racial justice in your businesses. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. 
And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.